Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. G'day, Sarah. I'm Peter from Bendigo. I have a question. What is so important about this election? I'm Sarah Wilson, and you're listening to This Wild Election, a mini-series that will help everyone who gives a shit about the stuff that defines our nation to make their vote count. Today, with less than two weeks until the election, we're going to cover off how to vote climate. Now, according to Vote Compass, climate is the number one policy concern for Australian voters this election. Big business is saying it's the same for them. And in fact, a few weeks ago, the Economic Society of Australia did a survey of the top 50 economists in the country and found that 74% nominated climate as the most important issue for the incoming government and for this election. But to meet the climate obligations that by now I'm sure many of you are familiar with, net zero by 2050, etc. We need to switch to renewables. And to do this, we need federal government policy that addresses building a stable grid and storage, has an electric vehicle plan and a just transition plan for coal miners and coal towns. Now, that's how I see things. And all of this is possible. All the solutions and technology exists. But as some of you might know by now, based on my rants about the place, we don't have a federal climate policy. And as a result, we actually rank last in the world in a 2002 Global Climate Performance Index. I'm talking below Kazakhstan, below Saudi Arabia on climate policy because literally we don't have one. And there's been a number of these global indexes that have been done over the years. And in all of them, we rank right down the bottom if not last. And to the extent that at the latest COP26 or Conference of Parties in Glasgow in November last year, we won the Colossal Fossil Award for, yep, a complete lack of climate policy. So you get the point. We need a climate policy and we need it this election. Now, the Liberal National Party under Scott Morrison have no plans to change their lack of policy position. And Labor, well, look, we'll get to where they're at and where the Greens are at when we get to the end of this podcast. But those 50 economists that I mentioned earlier, none of them, a fat zero, felt optimistic that either of the two parties would do something meaningful to sort the mess. In fact, Saul Eastlake said he was more likely to tread in thylacine poo on my front lawn of a morning, quote unquote, than see it address intelligently in the election debate. Well he's pretty much been right on that front. As I say, I'll go through the various climate policies of each party at the end, 
And as you know, a big part of what we're doing in this election series is setting things up so that we can vote in a slightly different way. And that is not to get fixated by the two major parties, but to look at some of the other options about the place. But first, I figured so that you can navigate all of this in your own way in your electorate, I figured it would be useful to use this episode to get clear on some of the the lies and the confusions that circulate in Australia when it comes to, to climate and stop many of us from making up our minds on you know, who we might vote for. So to do this, I've invited Richie Merzian, the Climate Director at the Australian Institute, to join us. Richie is a former Australian government representative to the UN Climate Change Conference. And as an aside, his kids are best friends with one of my brother's kids. Richie, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I think you were there at Glasgow and we spoke the day we got awarded the Colossal Fossil Award. I've got that right, don't I? I think it was on that exact day. Are you feeling a bit more hopeful than Saul Eastlake and those economists about this election? Yes, I am. Good. I think you have to be helpful working on climate change, because each iteration is a battle, but there's no alternative but to keep wading into whatever that scenario was that Saul outlined. At this election, you have Into the shit. Into the dinosaurs. I didn't want to say you said it. (laughs) But at this election, it seems like climate is being pushed right across the spectrum by multiple candidates and multiple political parties. And also this is off the back of the most recent climate science reports that really paint the dire picture that we're in. And Australia has changed, I think, in the last three years since our last federal election. You're seeing climate being considered as a legitimate option going forward, not something to be mocked like it was with numerous different policies. And stunts in Parliament. That's right. Lumps of coal in Parliament. So I thought the best way to kind of go through all this, because it's so confusing, it's a clusterfuck of false lies, half lies. You know, most of us are just really struggling to understand all the nuances when, you know, the politicians come out and make announcements on how amazing they are on climate policy. So I thought we might play a game. We'll call it fake news, fudged news or fact. And I'm going to read out a bunch of claims that you and I and everyone listening have heard multiple times on repeat from the various parties, but also media that are confusing us. And I want to, you can slam like an imaginary buzzer on a game (laughs) show, you know, and yell out fake fudged or fact. And then we might go to some listener questions that have been sent in. I think we'll get all of our questions answered one way or another. So you're up for it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Oh, and by the way, my aim with all of this, and I think it's the same with you, is to steer things to an outcome Mm. rather than just have a bitch and moan about how things are. So, yeah, let's just keep that as a sort of a background sort of aim. Okay, so first, Australia has zero climate policy. Look, that's a fudge. Australia does have climate policy. It's just not credible. Okay. and, And so you have, it's like window dressing behind it is uh, very little that you can hang your hat on. You call it fudged. I might call that a fake. There's no point in Australia doing anything about climate change. And I think I've actually got this quoted from Scott Morrison. There's no point in Australia doing anything about climate change because it produces only 1% of the world emissions. Is that fake, fudged or fact? Well, that is fake. Okay. Australia's emissions are more closer to one and a half than they are 1%. But... This is the real but. Australia is one of the biggest dealers in the problem when it comes to climate change, which is fossil fuels. Australia is arguably the largest exporter of coal, largest exporter of natural gas when it's liquefied. Therefore, 
Australia is actually supplying the problem to the rest of the world alongside Russia and Saudi Arabia. If this was the Olympics of dealing with the problem, Australia would have a podium position. And so you can't just look at the very narrow view of what we burn here. You have to look at what we contribute to the world more broadly. Yeah, I think I've heard you describe it in terms of a drug dealer. That's one of my analogies. Basically, Australia only uses a small amount of the drugs, being fossil fuels, but then is one of the largest dealers of the drugs. And when people are complaining, oh, wow, there's too many drugs in our streets, Australia's like, well, I only use a small amount of them. I'm only a small-time user. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not the problem. Don't come to me. I hardly use drugs. Yeah, got it. The technical term is scope three emissions. So when you include these scope three emissions, and these are the emissions that are created by Australia, but exported, when you include those, like where do we come out? Uh, If it's not 1%, what is it? Yeah, it pushes us much closer to the top. Like we become like, we're in the top 10, maybe even closer to the top five, if you work in what we actually deal to the world, but don't necessarily burn or emit right here. Yeah. So of all the countries in the world, I mean, I think I've come across the figure that we're the fifth biggest emitter, sort of on par with Russia. That's actually the fact that we're looking at here. It's not like we're just small time players. We're a big dealer. We're a big dealer. Okay, the next one. What's the point in doing anything anyway when China causes so much more pollution than Australia? And again, I've heard Scott Morrison use that exact line. And I think he said that China's emissions, quote unquote, accounted for more than the entire OECD combined. Fact, fudge, or what is it? What was was the other one? Fake. Fake. (laughs) This is a fudge. Right? It's very convenient to look at China right now and say, oh, China's a huge problem. It emits more than the Western world because you're not looking at per capita emissions. So what am I personally responsible for an Australian? Well, it's much larger, multiple times larger than a Chinese person. And secondly, it also discounts historical emissions. There's a reason why Australia and the US are called industrialized countries, because we've burnt lots of emissions to become industrialized. That's our responsibility. We can't just ignore the fact that we've benefited from the fact that we're westernized now because we've burnt so much. So if you're looking to scapegoat and weasel your way out of the situation, quote that, if you actually want to take responsibility for what's happened and what we are individually responsible for, then you should be seeing it through a different frame. I think our emissions are actually per capita something like nine times that of China, have I got that right? And 37 times that of India? India, yeah, Yeah. definitely in that ballpark. Yeah, okay. And I think that's a really good point. Do we want to be responsible, caring, global citizens? Is that how we want to see ourselves as Australians? Here's the kicker, right? China has huge emissions. Who's selling them those fossil fuels? Yeah. Uh, hang on. That'd be yeah. us. Right. It's like, oh, I, I'm so annoyed at that neighbor down the road. They're using so many drugs that I'm yeah. also selling them. The next one, this is another classic Scott Morrison one. He says we have reduced emissions more than 20% and that this is more than comparable countries like New Zealand, Canada, Japan, and so on. What's your take? Oh, that's a fudge. That That's thanks to dodgy accounting that Australia was instrumental in negotiating in the UN climate framework. What it's done is it's basically picked a very easy starting point, like starting a race halfway down the field and then finding the easiest way to to potentially get there. And that's basically stopping cutting down as many trees. And the way that we account for that is very generous. So it's a very easy way to get there. What hasn't happened is actually where most of our fossil fuels are being burnt That's just remained the same. So we're polluting just as much. This is the problem. And unless you transition that, then you're not really doing your fair share. Well, the other big thing, from what I understand, is that that statistic comes from a 2020 statistic. The rest of the world, being reasonable, 
and fair and understanding of these things went, we're not going to count 2020 because you know what was happening for the last two years? Oh, COVID. And we all know that that reduced emissions. So these countries that he's comparing us to, New Zealand and the US, Canada, Japan, they've said we're factoring that in. So we're not actually going to come out claiming we've dropped emissions because that would be false accounting. But Australia, no, we've actually gone ahead with that. You're basically taking advantage of a pandemic. It also takes advantage of a drought as well, which is ironic because it's a climate impact. So like, there's many ways that you can fudge this. Throughout everything you do on climate change, there has to be some moral responsibility for doing the right thing. If you want to game the system, you can do that. And unfortunately, that's where that number really comes from. I guess what's really disappointing about that is that for the everyday person, you can hear these figures and go, oh, we should be all right, because you don't have time to look into that. Well, which year were they all kind of comparing it with? Which year did they start from? Because that was another part of the accounting fudging, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. 2005 was a very high high level of of deforestation, of land clearing. And since then, changes were made. That dropped not really directly because of the federal government either from state government changes. And now Australia is pretending like that's a sink. So that draws down emissions rather than increasing it. The point to remember here is that they've cherry picked the bit where they want to actually say, oh, you know, 2005, yes, off, off the back of 2005, we've reduced. Well, you know, we all know how that can work. And mm. yeah, the disappointing thing is, is that the everyday Australian doesn't have time to factor all of these in, read no. the fine print and all of that. The thing is, though, the rest of the world is. And I think that's what should matter to most of us is that we're being called out. Like at COP, The rest of the world just pointed their finger at us and went, that's cheating, guys. And at Kyoto, with the Kyoto credits, we went through the same process. We were literally, by the UN, we were called cheaters. Yep. Australia was trying to cheat its way into meeting its emissions reductions. And only when when Prime Minister Scott Morrison was disinvited from a UN leadership summit by his mate Boris Johnson... Only then did the Prime Minister say, well, maybe we'll try and, you know, do our emissions reductions without using these particular dodgy credits, but it won't stop other dodgy things. And that's what we're in now. Yeah, I think that's the thing to take away from this is that it's embarrassing. We are being made fools of. And I'm just going to ask if it's not 20%. So if we haven't reduced our emissions by more than 20%, you know, which is what we're hearing every single day of this election campaign, what is the actual figure that we've reduced our emissions by in a framework that's comparable to what the rest of the world is working to? Yeah, when you look at it by removing that from the factor, then Australia's emissions generally have gone up. Okay. Over that period. A couple of percent, isn't yeah. it? A couple yeah. of percent. Yeah, I think that's worth keeping in mind. Not down by 20%, but, but up by a couple of percent. Okay, another line we're very, very familiar with. Electric vehicles can't tow a boat, therefore <laughs> they're a massive problem. That, that's just fake. <laughs> yeah. it, it's straight up fake. I mean, you, you've seen footage of an electric vehicle towing a Boeing Dreamliner. Like th- These are far more capable tools. I think most of us know that by now, don't yeah. we? I mean, the thing is that maybe some Australians are aware of now as well is that we're not getting the electric vehicles. We want them. We're being told that they're going to save us lots of money. They are the future. We're getting excited. And then you go and try and buy one and you get put on a waiting list of like 20,000 people. Are we kind of the dumping ground for all the shit vehicles around the world, including emissions vehicles? As yeah. A, okay. That, 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 that is a fact. fact. Australia is becoming a dumping ground for, for clunkers, basically, because not only does Australia not have any incentives in place so that car makers, because they all exist overseas. Remember, mm-hmm. Australia is a car taker now. We don't make cars anymore fully. 
So in order to attract those, we don't have incentives for electric vehicles, but not only that, we don't even have fuel efficiency standards, which means that our cars are some of the most inefficient cars in the world. 80% of the world have fuel efficiency standards. China, the US, we don't. So if I'm a car manufacturer in Japan, I will send the dirtiest cars to Australia and my cleanest cars to the European Union. Mm. And that's the other problem. So we're all paying more to go the same distance than people overseas because our cars are more inefficient. We're burning more fuel. And here's the real kicker, which always riles me up. Australia imports all, almost all of its liquid fuels. 90% of our oil and our diesel, it all comes from overseas. So we don't even make it here. All that money just flows straight back out to Saudi Arabia or wherever else we're getting our oil. And yet we have a lot of sun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could be making our transport fuels right here in our backyard with sun, with wind, with water, we, if we electrified our transport. And yet we have one of the lowest uptakes of electric vehicles. And now that people are interested, you can't even get them here. I'm going to cut to some questions that have come in from people who have wanted to have these questions answered on this very podcast. So this is from Jonathan via direct message. He's asked, how does fossil fuel money actually... Hi, I'm DeLon Grant. And I'm Francesca Ramsey. And together we host the podcast, Let Me Fix It. Each week we explore something from the past and then we pitch how to fix it for today. But forget about the past. Let's talk about the new show of the moment. DeLon, did you get a chance to watch the new Queenie trailer I sent you? How dare you send me this amazing (laughs) show that took me back to every messy breakup I've ever had. Thank God I had you through my 20s. Now, you could not pay me to go back and relive those days. But thankfully, we will be living as Queenie navigates her messy 20s. All episodes of Queenie premiere June 7th streaming on Hulu. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. We influence climate policy. I think that's a really good question because a lot of people hear it. We can't quite believe that it happens. How does it happen? How does the fossil fuel industry actually steer, say, the LNP for the last, you know, nine years to make certain climate policies and not others or no climate policy is the case might be? So there are some times where it is directly transactional. This company that wants to frack the Northern Territory makes a donation and has dinners and flies over the minister and all that kind of stuff. And bada bing, bada boom, nine months later, they get a very big grant that's five or six times as much as they invested into wheeling and dealing. And that's a real life scenario you're talking about there. Yep. 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 So it can be transactional in that sense, or it can be in a much larger sense, which is that they fund, they provide a lot of funding to a lot of different political candidates in numerous different places. They have a lot of jobs lined up for politicians as soon as they finish as well. They have a rotation between their industry and the public service. So there's all these different layers to it. And what then comes out of it is, say, for example, we have a COVID-19 pandemic. The federal government has to appoint someone to lead the recovery task force and they pick a gas executive. Well, it was a bunch of them. There were yeah. a bunch of them from the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. So there. they get a say in the future of Australia, which they love because they want coal to be part of the sure. future well, of Australia. I mean, what did we get 
How do we respond to the COVID-19 pandemic? Oh, we have a gas fire recovery, recovery, right? So that's how it plays out. And it's indirect, but it's part of a much bigger problem. Okay. And the money that you see that's provided up front is the tip of the iceberg. The influence goes much deeper. And of course, federal ICAC and addressing things like that, their policies that I think the independents and the Greens are putting forward and Labor um, and, and wanting to address and, it. And hopefully this will be an integrity election because we've really seen this issue being pushed forward and you've seen the federal government promise to deliver an, an, an ICAC and not. Yep, Okay. All right, this is from Tony from Bendigo. Again, another direct message. We can't switch to renewables because the grid hasn't been stabilised. In an ideal world, what policies would the winning government implement to get us ready for a renewable economy? This is a great question. Our grid is not fit for purpose, right? It, it was built for very large coal-fired power stations pumping out in one direction electricity to everyone else. We're switching to smaller renewable energy plants peppered all over the place in very different locations and potentially a two-way flow of energy. Because if I'm generating more electricity on my roof with my EV, my electric vehicle, I can then pump that back in. An EV, just so that everybody's clear, can serve as a battery. That's how this new future will work. And I think Saul talks about your your jet ski also yeah. serving as a battery. Yeah. There it is sitting there storing the energy because, of course, most people would realise a big problem with solar and wind. We've got so much of it. Where does it go when we have too much? We need to store it somewhere so that when it's dark and not windy, where can we store it so it can pump back out again? And, yes, as you, you know, electric vehicles and, and jet skis can be yeah, used right. for that, but... Yeah, we also need a grid. That's right. So you can turn your, your house with panels and with, your, I mean, your, an electric vehicle is a battery with wheels. And so you can build all that and then basically be your own little power station. But if that's if our grid can accommodate it. So we need a fit for purpose grid. Also, the other thing that fossil fuel generators, coal and gas used to do is provide security services. That's the stabilizing that I think the question goes to. That can be provided by batteries even better than it can with the existing massive thermal generators that we have. So all those things can be done if we build the grid to do it. And, you know, credit to Labor, for example, they have a $20 billion, you know, rewiring Australia fund and agency that will hopefully invest in that. And that's the kind of thing that, that you need to see. that be good enough? It's definitely going in the right direction. Part of it is we do not have a plan, a clear plan for what our grid needs to look like post-2025. We were supposed to do it. There was a, an agency built for it, but it was, in a sense, had had Defunded. Its, uh, well, it, yeah, it had its sort of knees capped in. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what sounds more brutal. We've got a recorded message here. Hi, Sarah. My name is Holly and I live in Morpeth, a heritage town in the Lower Hunter Valley. We know that this upcoming election is a climate election and we need our government to move away from fossil fuels. Not surprisingly, so many people around where I live, they work in the mines or in industries associated with the mines. So my question is, how do we engage with these people and bring them to vote for our future and for governments who will commit to renewable energy where no doubt they would be concerned that in doing so will render them jobless. That's an awesome question, Holly. Richie, maybe you can just kind of give almost like a barbecue stopper elevator type pitch that Holly could share with friends over coffee there in the the Lower Hunter. Yeah, and I've been to Morpeth. It's a lovely town. The answer is that the Hunter exports most of its coal. Most of Australia's coal goes to three countries. They're all going to net zero. So they're going to say, thanks for the good times we're going to stop buying as much coal. 
The um, Newcastle port knows this, which is why they haven't built an additional terminal for coal. They've oh, actually that's transitioned. Telling. That's really um, telling. So the T4 is not going to be built for coal anymore. So you're seeing this already starting to filter through. The best thing that can happen right now is looking at investing in new sustainable industries that actually do have a viable future and doing that now so that we've got a good lead time going into it because no one's saying let's close coal mines now. They're saying let's stop opening up new ones and start planning the transition. And the transition could be in terms of making hydrogen with renewable energy. It could be in totally different industries that we haven't even thought of yet. The point is you actually start doing that work now and you stop growing the problem now. Here's another one. Hi, Sarah. It's Therese from Melbourne. I'm tired of hearing the PM go on about economic growth. There will be no economic growth with climate change. Who will I vote for? What party will do the most to curb climate change in our world? I think the ACF is doing a scorecard. I think GetUp is doing one. And then I'll also just point people to Vote Compass because you can actually go on there, you can look on your electorate and they will have all of the candidates running with a description of what their policies are with a link to their website. So that's actually the, the easiest way. What's your take, Richie? We don't know what the cost of inaction is to climate change, but we're seeing it and we're feeling it. And it's like the floods up north. It was the bushfires, um, it's the drought. That's the cost of not doing anything. And I think we're past the stage now where we can say, oh, it's too costly taking action on climate change because we're feeling the cost of inaction. And so really the best thing that we need to be doing now is coming up with a national plan for how we adapt, how we build our resilience to climate impacts so they stop hurting as much, and how we actually do our fair share, which is stopping new fossil fuels, stopping fossil fuel subsidies, investing in the clean energy solutions, in electricity, in transport, in industry, and turn Australia into a powerhouse to export those solutions because we've got a massive country and lots of sun and wind and lots of opportunity, and we just need to actually strap in and get amongst it. And just get on with it faster. Yeah. Okay. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. What would be an ideal scenario? Come May the 22nd, you know, we wake up and there's an announcement as to what the situation is. And of course, we may have a hung parliament in all of this. Richie, from a, from a purely climate perspective, mixed in with some economic aspects, of course, because the two go together, what would be the ideal scenario from a climate perspective? 
If you're looking at it just from a climate perspective, then you need to do what the climate requires, right? That's at least halving emissions this decade, if not three quarters, which is, I think, what the Greens' target is. That would be the best outcome. How do you get there? Well, you need to have enough politicians who have that target front and centre in positions of power in the next parliament. And what would that look like? Is that a is that a Labor minority government with a crossbench with a good, I don't know, eight, nine progressive Greens and independents? Is is that the best scenario? Because that's what, how I'm adding it up. Look, that would, that would be one formula that would get you there. You'd have a good chunk from the Labor Party. You'd have numerous sort of Green parliamentarians in both houses. And you'd have independents there to also hold them to account as well. Yes, basically getting as many politicians who have good climate policies into parliament is key. And then out of that, you will wash through a much stronger climate agenda for the country. That's that's what we ultimately need if Australia is to do its fair share. And geez, does Australia have a lot of catching up to do. Listeners can read between lines there, but I think the big message here is when you go to fill in your ballot paper and you really care about climate, make sure... You bear in mind or at least do the research to see which candidates are speaking this language really succinctly and essentially we will roll or tumble or meander our way into a scenario that will make sense. We don't have to overthink it, but I think, you know, that in all likelihood a minority Labor government that has to negotiate with a crossbench of progressives, that's my take. That's where I think it's all going to head. Richie, thank you so much. You have deciphered a whole heap of dinosaur poo from <laughs> from, from fact <laughs> and, here and for colossal, us. Colossal fossils. You know, being at the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow as an Australian is, is pretty it's pretty embarrassing uh, because you're trying to make sense of something that is so counter to what you believe and what you know most Australians believe. And if I'll say one thing for what the Labor Party is proposing is they want to switch that around and they want to actually host a UN climate conference here in Australia. Oh, God, their game. In two years' time. Really? Yep, in 2024. Could it happen? It could happen, totally. Like the, 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 the diplomatic intricacies of it could be sorted out and Australia could be hosting one in two years' time. If you have enough momentum behind that idea and you certainly have the Labor shadow uh, for climate, Chris Bowen pushing that idea. That is what we need to showcase what Australia could be contributing and to bring the whole world here to have a different type of conversation around what Australia's role could be from everything it has been the last almost decade. Well, I applaud that because they're sort of saying in that gesture, game on, game on, call us to account and perhaps, I'm just going to put it out there, perhaps it's a tactic to force their hand to go further on their climate policies. Just an idea. Hey, that was awesome. Thanks. My pleasure. Now, as I promised, I'll go through briefly now what each party is offering on climate policy, just a quick rundown. But first, a quick question that came in late that fits to this kind of fact or fiction game that I was playing with Richie Mersian. And I'll read it out for E. So it's Tanya in Mackay. She has written in asking, the Morrison government keeps saying we need coal and gas for the jobs, but is this true? Okay. I'll answer this one really quickly because I think it's a really important one. I think we need to bear in mind that the total number of jobs in fossil fuels in Australia is actually only 60,000. So even in big coal towns, fossil fuel jobs make up only about 5% of the jobs, even in those towns. Now, in terms of calculating how many more jobs are created by renewables, a figure that does float around is about three to four times. So there's three to four times more potential jobs in the renewable energy sector than in fossil fuels. 
Now, that is an American figure, but I did notice that the ACF just came out with a report and some modelling that they did on a number of hypothetical scenarios. And it looks like it's around about six to 10 times as many jobs if we build a renewable energy project instead of a new coal or gas project as per the gas-led recovery. So I invite you to go and look at the report. I believe it's called Renewable Energy is the Real Jobs Winner. And it came out, I think, just uh, one or two weeks ago. So a quick rundown now of the various parties' climate policies or lack thereof. So the Liberal National Party does have a net zero by 2050 target, but with some LNP ministers the last week or two saying it's not a fixed commitment, quote unquote, it is sounding tenuous, I have to say, but you know, they say they do have one. Now, most global bodies are saying to reach this 2050 goal, we need to be getting to a 50% reduction by 2030, you know, to hit net zero by 2050. The LNP has set a goal of 26 to 28% reduction in emissions. Labor's 2030 commitment is 43%, so it's getting a little closer. The Greens is 75%, which is in line with what's been happening a little in Europe. Now, how do we get there? What is the policy that will get us there? So the LNP is not proposing any changes to their current trajectory, which is essentially to invest in hydrogen and carbon storage technology, which I've got to say, both of which commentators refer to as very speculative or dubious technology at this stage. So it's business as usual from Scott Morrison's LNP. So Labor has a tax discount plan for EVs, a commitment to upgrade the grid and various commitments to installing solar batteries and solar banks around the country. And they've also announced strengthening the existing safeguard that caps high polluters, but they'd be adjusting it to phase things out to reach that net zero target by 2050. So they'd be making an adjustment. And of course, Labor is saying that they would be putting forward that they'd host COP with the Pacific nations. And I'll just add that in because Richie Merzian did send me a message to this effect in 2023. So what about the Greens? Well, the Greens have said they would phase out coal and gas completely and switch to 100% renewable energy as soon as possible. They've also got investments set aside for investing in the grid, in EVs and battery policies. And they say they'd fund it by taxing big corporations. And I should also throw in there that unlike Labor and the LNP, they've committed to scrapping the $10 billion plus each year that is put to coal and fossil fuel industry subsidies. That's massive. All of which would put us, I guess, more in line with what's happening in Europe, for example. And the Teal Independents, who I've talked about a bit in this series, also have policies that are quite comparable. Now, I'm just going to throw in here, I did an Instagram interview with a coal miner. He's been a coal miner for 40 years. His name's Grant. He's from Mackay as well. And I asked him about which party has the best just transition plan for coal miners like him. And, you know, who was offering what? And essentially he said the two major parties really aren't offering much at all and that the Greens had the best policy for coal miners. Go figure. We're less than two weeks out from the election and I really invite everybody to stay on top of this really important issue and hopefully this episode will help you sort the fact from the fiction in this whole quagmire. 
Okay, in the next few episodes, I'm going to cover off some of the other five pillars of care. So women's equality and sexual violence, and also a First Nations voice to parliament. Please stay tuned and keep sharing this episode with all of your friends. Please feel free to keep posting the questions. I'm incorporating them in a very agile, last minute kind of way to ensure that I'm addressing exactly what you want to know about. Anyway, until next time, stay wild. Stay wild.